Meet and No Techno Bubble. I'm Carl Heath, your host. This week we're talking about dark web stories. Dark web, something you might see a lot of at the moment on the news. There's a lot of articles talking about the dark web. It's all over LinkedIn. It's on the television. It's on the radio. It's a big thing at the moment. It's a bit of a zeitgeist spirit of the age what is this dark dark web is it like dark mapping in the universe is it dark because it's evil like a dark lord well that's what we're going to find out in this episode maybe dispel some of the hype that's around dark web and help you understand actually what it is and whether it affects you and whether there's any risk to you and your business let's start with the web now we all know what the web is the web is a great big collection of computers across the world the internet which is connected by the world wide web which uses certain protocols in order for us to open a web browser like Google Chrome and have a look around the web. Well, there's actually more to the web than initially meets the eye. So when you type into Google, for example, for a search, you're only actually searching a very small part of the internet. There's lots of other parts of the internet that you can't get through a search engine because they're not accessible. And some of that makes sense. And this is called the deep web. And the deep web is probably about 90% of the internet. What that really means is it sites that are behind logins it's sites that are your Gmail, for example, or sites that are your Google Drive, because they're not accessible without your username and password. They're hidden away. They're still on the internet. They still exist. They're deeply hidden behind security. So when we think about the deep web, it doesn't necessarily mean that any of the stuff that's on the deep web is in any way mysterious or suspicious. It's simply not available to the general public. And that's really no different than thinking about a bookstore that's full of books that you could read if you buy a book and take it home. Yeah, people still do that kind of stuff. If you take my analogy to a public library, which is open and accessible to you as a member of the public where you can go in and yeah, I know you need to have a library card, but everybody can generally get a library card and you can take that book out. So that's publicly accessible. So the deep web really is a little bit like the difference between what's on the public record about somebody and what's on the private record about somebody and the deep web is the private side of the internet. 90% of it, as I say, of the internet itself is the deep web. What does that mean the dark web is? Well, the dark web is part of the deep web. Again, it is dark web won't come up in a standard search. There are things that are on the dark web that you'll see in the news. Child pornography, drugs for sale, stolen credentials, hacked accounts, all sorts of illicit, anything illicit and illegal the horrible things in life, the things that go on that criminals do, that's all on the dark web. The dark web accounts for 0.1% of the internet. So already we're busting out some of the hype. You watch the news or you read a BBC website and it might make you think that the dark web is everywhere and actually the world's infiltrated by criminals and evil, horrible people that do disgusting things to each other. But let's look at the stats. Let's look at the real deal. Deep web, that's the part of the internet you can't get through to through a normal search engine, 90% of the internet. Dark web, that's part of that deep web, 0.1%. Big difference. We can clearly see the dark web is a very, very small fraction of the whole internet. And that makes sense because criminality is still a small fraction of general society. The evil behavior of people who are involved in abhorrent pornography and violence and drugs are still a very, very small fraction of society. So as Nick Ross used to say, don't have nightmares on the old crime watch. Let's get this into perspective. It's a very, very small part of the internet. 
Now you might be asking yourself, what is this dark web? What's this deep web? What is it called? I don't understand. I type into Google, but Google comes back and tells me it's found 16 billion results for what I've typed in. So where the now is the rest of this internet? Well, the dark web was actually originally invented by the US Department of Defense, and it runs over something called a Tor browser. And Tor stands for the onion router, and the onion router because onions have layers. I'm not going to get into the deepness of this. If you stick Tor browser into Google, the Wikipedia page comes up and you can have a read all about it. What you want to remember is it was invented by the US Department of Defense. Therefore, its own people were able to talk secretly and protected online. This is all nation state stuff. This means the US can talk to its operatives in the CIA who are international without fear of their data being intercepted by North Korea or the Russians or the Chinese or whoever they don't want to see at that point in time. As with all these things, it's created by a government organisation. So the government have made this. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing either. Tor and the whole dark web have benefits for people like journalists who need to do investigatory research and not be found out who they are. So journalists can use that. Only the other night, I was looking through the channels. On comes the legend himself, Ross Kemp, with one of his extreme worlds. He's in extreme Texas this time, talking about racial violence between black society and white society. He's literally labelling it black society and white society, and is there going to be a race war? And some of the people he was meeting up with as a journalist were heads of Bloods and Crips gangs and things like that. How do they get those meets together? This is where they'll use systems like this. This is where journalists will go into the dark web in order to communicate with criminals anonymously so that they can produce what they do as journalists. Same for whistleblowers. If you're in a part of the world, if you're in a country that's an oppressive regime and certain things are watched and monitored by the government, using the dark web with Tor and an encrypted browser is one of the only ways that you can communicate out of your country to other people about what might be happening in terms of oppression of human rights, those kind of violations. So the dark web itself is not necessarily a bad thing. As with all aspects of life, it's not usually the tool that's the bad thing, it's what people do with the tool. Okay. What's out there? What's on this deep web, dark web? You know, what is on the dark web? What's really out there? Well, a lot of the things that you'll find out there, I've already described. That you're going to find there was a site called the Silk Road that was there for some time, and it was named the Silk Road after the famous trip from Asia over to the West. That was from Marco Polo's day. That was known as the Silk Road. It was the road for commerce to come over from Asia to Europe in many, many centuries ago. I think it was probably the 15th, 14th, 15th century, something like that. I'm sure someone will correct me if my history is wrong. So the Silk Road's where you used to be out to buy drugs. And eventually that got, the guy who ran the Silk Road eventually got busted and he got caught and he got sent to jail for making millions and millions of pounds by enabling a site that criminals and drug drug dealers can use to sell to each other. So yes, that's going on on the internet. When you see the dark web on the television, what it's going to be really talking about is Oh, well, if you don't realise, your details are on the dark web. You as a business owner, you as an individual, your personal details are on the dark web. I'll start with, if you actually have a search for what personal details are online for you anyway, there's a lot, particularly if you use social media. If you use Facebook and you've signed up to LinkedIn and you use Instagram and you've used other sites over the years and you've bought things on eBay, you'd be amazed how much stuff there is on simply Googling your own name and doing some digging around. So don't freak out when people say, oh, your details are on the dark web. Your details are probably online anyway. If you're an online user, it's going to be there. If you're not an online user, then the chances are there'll be less on there. The more that you use the internet, the more that you've got involved in this whole revolution that's happened over the last 10, 15 years, the more likely you're going to be on the internet. That's a bit of a no-brainer. 
there's the first thing you need to think about. Don't jump to those conclusions. You're already online and details about you are out there and you don't need to freak about them. They're mostly going to be on the public record anyway. If you're a company director, your name's going to be on the public record. The registered location of your businesses, which can often be the person's home. You know, a lot of information is out there already. I can find that out. It's not something you should be freaking out about because it's already on the public record. So the TV doesn't really start with a good thing. The media don't start very well because they're already trying to suggest that everything is out there about you when it already, most of it already is. Okay, let's say there's more about you online. Let's say your password is on the dark web. Your details are on the dark web. How does that happen? Today, in the news, November the 30th, 2018, Marriott Hotels admit to a hack since 2014, 500 million records compromised for that hotel. How many of us have booked a hotel? Marriott is a holding company for multiple other hotel chains as well, so it's not simply the Marriott Hotel. That means the chances are that some of the credentials that we've logged into the Marriott Hotel site have been compromised and put on the dark web. That means now, if I've ever stayed at a Marriott Hotel, which I have, there's a very good chance that my details are on the dark web now because they've been hacked and stolen. This was reported today and it's been stolen over the last few years. Those kind of things get put onto sites like Pastebin. Pastebin is a site where you will go and paste, you will literally go and put on records that have been stolen. It's where whistleblowers put information that have taken from companies. It's also where criminals put this information, hackers put it to show what they've done. All sorts of stuff gets put on Pastebin. You can download it. I've done it in the past. You can go on there, you can find a list, you can download it, and whoa, we there you go. People's details, names, email addresses, phone numbers. It depends what the data is that's been stolen. It's on the internet. There's nothing anyone can do about it. It happens. What I'm trying to get to here is why this is really important is don't believe the hype that you see in the media straight away telling you that your details are on the dark web. Let's, let's admit it. Our details are on the dark web. And that's okay because it's always going to happen. I see a lot of companies who are offering dark web scan this. They will look at the internet. We'll find your details. I'll come into your office and log in with your password to show you how smart I am at scanning the internet and finding this stuff. I have this conversation with my partner. I'm going to roll back to something different here. I'm going to give an analogy that's a little bit different. I have this conversation with my partner about a lot of the junk that we have in our house. I don't like junk and clutter, so I want to get rid of it. She wants to keep it. Where do we keep it? Where do we keep it? Right, it's in a box that we never open, something like that. It's under a bed in a box that we never open. So I say to her, well, why don't you just imagine that you own it and then we'll throw it away and it's still in the box under the bed that you're not going to go into anyway, but just pretend that it's there. So I, it's a bit of an, it's an abstractive concept. It's a bit of an abstractive concept where you're creating this idea that you've got something, but it's hidden away out of sight and you're never going to do it. You might even equate it to Schrodinger's cat where is the cat alive or the cat dead. You don't know until you open the box and qualify it. It's that kind of situation. Where I see this in relation to the dark web is are my details on the dark web? Are my details not on the dark web? Let's just go with they're on the dark web. Assume they're on the dark web. Something that you've logged into at one point, one website somewhere or multiple websites have been hacked and compromised and your details are on the dark web. That says, right, well, what do I do about that? What about that, Carl? That's as easy enough for you to say, but that was pretty scary if my stuff's out there. The first thing that you're going to want to do is not pay anybody to do a scan on the internet to find this stuff for you. Remember, we're making the assumption that it's already out there. It's already out there. We don't need someone to go and find it for us to tell us that it's already out there. We know it's already out there because we know it's out there. We're making that assumption. That's going to save you a few quid straight away. That's going to save you. If someone coming into your business and telling you, oh, I can scan the dark web and find this stuff for you, 
forget about it. You don't need them to do that. We'll make that assumptive decision. My credentials are now on the dark web. What am I going to do about it? Here's the first one. The first thing we need to do, we make sure that we have a different password for every website that we use. Now, yeah, okay, I can hear you from here. I can hear you in my garage from here shouting, yeah, yeah, we've been told this for years, Kyle, we know this. We know we have to have a different password. I can't remember all the bloody passwords. And even if I do, I can't, for the life of me, be bothered to have the original password. So I stick a ampersand on the end or an exclamation mark on the end or I increment the number on the end. So it's one, two, whatever it is, blah, 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 word, one, blah, 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 word, two, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Yes, I get that. It doesn't work. I do not expect you to remember all the passwords that you need for all the hotel chains that you'll ever stay in, let alone everything else. I am not that kind of evil person. No, no, no. I'm really not. You can do something about this, though. And the answer to that is you use a password manager. And a password manager, you've probably heard about those, but you probably haven't bothered to do it or you thought it might be too complicated. What a password manager does is whenever you sign up to any site with your details, it will prompt you for a password and it will suggest you have a password and it will suggest you some crazy long password. So you can have some password that's like 30 characters long, that's all lowercase, uppercase, it doesn't spell any words, it's got all those special characters like percentage signs and stuff in it. There's no way in the world you could ever remember it because it's 30 line. You can't remember that save your life, but it's blooming complicated. And if you stick it into one of the tools that tells you how complicated your password is, it tells you that it'll take 15 trillion years for someone to crack it. So it's pretty good password password manager suggests that to you you hit the button and it enters that password for you as you sign up you sign up and then it pops up on your screen says do you want to remember this password you click yes you remember the password it's now saved in your password manager when you visit the site again the password manager software that's installed on your web browser like a chrome extension or is on your mobile phone which i've done with lastpass bitwarden one password there's many products it automatically enters it for me. I visit the site, it fills it in, it asterisks out the password so someone can't read it over the shoulder. I click enter and I'm in. I don't have to remember the password, the password's done for me. I can do the same on my mobile device. That's very helpful. Now, that means I can have a unique password for every single account that I use. It's super long and super complicated so it can't be guessed or brute forced or anything like that and I can get in. Now, you, the smart amongst you will be thinking, yes, but what about the password for your password manager? How do you get into that? Good question. Yes, you have a password for your password manager, but then this is the magic part. Here's the magic part. You have what's called two-factor authentication on that. Two-factor authentication. You may or may not have heard of that. What that means, it's a secondary way of checking who you are. I log into a website. I either enter my password, and let's say for argument's sake, this is my master password for my password manager. I have to know what that password is. Therefore, it's probably not going to be as strong as the 30-letter one because I've got to remember it. For argument's sake, all of us could create a decent password that may be a phrase, like I took the dog to the park on a Tuesday. That's not a bad password as a phrase, and it's not too hard to remember I took the dog to the park on a Tuesday. Let's say, for example, you have something like that that you put in. You enter that password. Then two-factor authentication will send you a text message will ask you to open an app like Google Authenticator, which you use your phone to scan a barcode off the screen associated with the app, and then every 30 seconds it generates a six-digit number. You type the six-digit number in and you log in. What that means is the criminal can have your username and your password 
to your password manager, but they can't get in without the text message or the authenticator code that comes to your mobile phone. And the chances of them having that, having your username, your password, and your mobile phone are pretty slim. That's how you protect your master password. So your password manager has to support two-factor authentication. Now, while we're on two-factor authentication, this is the next thing that you can do. Let's say now you're listening and you're going, okay, Kyle, I've gone through all the websites and I've set them all up with a unique password and I'm using a password manager and I've enabled two-factor authentication. What next? Okay, let's go back to the websites. Let's take a website like PayPal. Pretty important that you don't have someone get into your PayPal account. PayPal's super handy. You set your card up, you set the bank up, and you can buy online with PayPal. I like using PayPal. It's very helpful. It's frictionless, and I can do things quickly and buy things, which everybody likes to do. However, I don't want my PayPal password getting into someone's hands. Let's again say, for example, the computer that I'm using has got a criminal's bit of software on it. I'm not at my normal computer. I might be at a colleague's business. I log on to his machine. I'm just going to do something. I need to use PayPal. Not thinking. I just crack on and log in. They've already got criminal software on this machine. That software's got something called a keylogger. And what a keylogger does is it logs keystrokes. So as I type my password in, because I'm reading it off my phone from my password manager, as I'm typing it in, it records the keystrokes and the criminal's got my password to my PayPal account. Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. PayPal support two-factor authentication. Now I have to get a text message. At the moment, PayPal only support the text message format, but that's better than nothing. So it means if the criminal's stolen my password, it's got my username, it's got my password, but he can't get into my PayPal account because PayPal want a text message to my phone and I've got my phone. And that stops them from getting in. Now I could go into the details about why SMS isn't as good as the authenticator apps and other things like that, but that's for a different podcast. The premise that I'm wanting to share with you is that when you've got two-factor authentication enabled, you have significantly, if not 95%, shut down the risk of the criminal stealing your password. Because even if they've got it, they can't get into your account. This is why it's so important. What you've got to go and do now is you've got to go and enable two-factor authentication on every single account that supports it. Now, that is a pain in the backside, and you don't want to do it, and you're in a chimp where we go, I can't be asked to do that. I really can't be asked to do that. And that's your choice. I'm suggesting you do do it. Do it. The reason being is when somebody does compromise your account and they do steal money from Amazon and buy some TV sets and then that you didn't want, and it's only a few grand or something, all right, they're not taking your mortgage money. They've not taken your life savings. They're just taking a few grand. You try getting it back. It's really difficult. These big companies like Amazon who've got two-factor authentication will say, did you have two-factor authentication enabled? And you'll go, no, I don't have, no, it's not enabled on my account. And Amazon will go, yep, that's right, it's not enabled. So you must have given your password to someone. Now you'll go, I did not give my password to anybody. And Amazon will go, well, you did. You did it inadvertently because you must have typed it in on a compromised machine. You must have given it to me. Somebody must have seen you. You will be accountable. It's your account and you're held accountable for it. If you've got two-factor authentication, that shoulder surfer, as they say, the person stood behind you, that keylogger software that's on someone's computer that's got a virus on it, it might capture your password. The shoulder surfer captures your password, but they haven't got your two-factor authentication. They haven't got your phone. They haven't got your Google Authenticator app that's unique to you on your phone, and they can't get in. This is why it's so important. Go away and enable two-factor authentication on everything that matters. That's your Apple, that's your Google account, that's your Office 365, that's your Amazon, your PayPal, your eBay. Anything and everything that accepts it, you do it. And you absolutely do it on your password manager. Back to business. 
because what I've just spoken about there relates to personal and to business. It works both sides of your life and probably more on the personal side than the business side. However, on the business side of things, when we when we use our business systems, many of us will use systems like G Suite from Google, Office 365 from Microsoft for our email, documents, file storage online, all of these things. These both support two-factor authentication. I would ask this question, if you're using G Suite or Office 365 in your business and you can log into it on any computer without with only a password, you want to have words with your IT manager or your IT provider and go, why? Why are they allowing you simply to have only a password? I've told you how simple it is to lose that password due to shoulder surfer, a keylogger. It's not difficult for that to happen. You can't afford to have only a password. Now, what do you have next? Okay, so let's say you're gonna go for two-factor authentication. There's a few levels of this. First one's text message. It's okay, but it's pretty easy actually to pretend to be somebody, phone up Vodafone or EE and get a SIM card for your mobile phone. That's social engineering, rooting through litter bins, looking for letters and utility bills and all that kind of stuff and faking stuff. You'll have seen it on BBC. They'll do it on their watchdog program and things like that. It's not that hard to do if somebody actually wants to make the effort to do it. I would therefore not use to, not use SMS as a two-factor authentication unless it's the only option that you've got. If you're using G Suite and you're using 365, there are other options. Your other options are to use things like Google Authenticator, which again, I said, is you get your mobile phone, you point the camera at the screen, it takes a picture of the barcode or a Q code, a QR code as it's called, and that unite, uniquely identifies you and your account to a series of changing numbers on your phone every six minutes, every oh, six minutes, six numbers that change every 20 seconds or so. And when you log in, it'll ask you for the code. You open your phone, you go in and you put the code in. It takes you maybe a minute to do this, which can be a little bit extra level. There's always inconvenience with security. Security inconvenience are like a seesaw, one up, one down. It's a fair balance. That's the next one. The ultimate, the best level at the moment that we have of two-factor authentication is what's called a USB security key. USB security key is what James and I and Kimberly IT give to all of our customers. All our clients have USB security key or they will have them soon. We're rolling them out at the moment through all of our client base. And what that means is when they log into their Google account for the first time, it will ask them, to use two-factor authentication. And the primary method is this USB key. It's a little plastic key that's about an inch and a bit long and it fits onto a key ring and it's got a little gold connector that you plug into the USB port. When you plug into the USB port, it blinks green, you touch it with your finger, which isn't fingerprint, it's not biometric, it's simply to give an electric contact to it to show that there was a person there with it at the time. And it logs you in. So that's the primary, primary two-factor authentication. You have to have the key. Now these keys go into USB slots in computers and you can also get them so that they're what's called NFC, which is a near, near field like wireless cards when you pay at the till in the uh, supermarket, same sort of thing. So you can put the key near to your mobile phone or your tablet as well so that you can use it. And these are really super secure because there's no software involved, it's physical key, it's physical. So if you think about it, the moment you've got that key on your key ring in your hand, it's what's, it can't, how can it be accessed by anything? It's sat there, it, it's sat there and it can't be accessed. So it's more secure than software because technically the Google Authenticator app on your phone could be compromised. We're kind of getting to the level of espionage and spy stuff here where someone's hacked into my phone and they're specifically targeting me. But if I was a very famous person, I was in the public media or I was in government, maybe somebody would go to that effort. I'm Kyle Heath, so the chances are I'm not that interesting and no one's going to do that to me. 
but the security key is what you want to have with the usb security key for our clients they log into g suite if they don't have their key to plug into the computer they can't get in that's it that's secure so if you haven't got the key you can't get in and that's pretty that's pretty secure stuff this is all widely available the keys aren't expensive the non-NFC keys, so the keys that aren't wireless are 20 quid, and the keys that are wireless are about 40 to 50 pounds each. So they're not a massive amount of money. And when you see in the media all this news report about phishing this and stealing email credentials this and are your company's credentials for sale on the dark web? Well, they won't be if you're using a USB key to get into your Google G Suite or your Office 365 account. They won't be. They won't be there because without that key, they can't get in. Now... You might say to me, what if I forget my key? I left it on my car keys. I left it on my house keys. And I left them at home today because uh, my wife's at home all day, so I didn't take my keys to work. And I don't have my key. I can't log in. Okay, that's a fair point. Two ways you could approach that. If you're ultra strict in your business and you've only set the USB keys, the only level of two-factor authentication, then you can't log in. Now, what you do then is when you're working with people like Kimberly IT, you contact James and I and say, I've left my key at home, I can't get in. What we can do as the admins of G Suite is enable you to have a second level of authentication in. So for that short period of time, we can give you a recovery code. We can personally give you a recovery code that logs you in, and then once you're logged in, we can show you how you can set up Google Authenticator on your phone as a secondary way of getting access. If your company's got a very strict policy, it's tough, you ain't getting in, and you've got to go home and get your key. Depends on the, you know, depends on the level of security of data that you're dealing with in your business. If your business rule is you're not no key, no entry, then you've got to go home and get your key. So don't forget your key. We always recommend you put it on your car keys, because the chances are most people are coming to work in a car, and therefore you're not going to forget them. But there are ways and means that you can, with your administrators' help, with your IT providers' help and assistance, you can get around that for one single instance. But you can't do that without our help. And we, we control the, for example, for our clients, we control their entire G Suite. We manage it, look after it for them. That's what our business does as part of what we do as an IT agency. So we've got the ability to help our clients. That's what they pay for. We keep them safe. And then if they do forget their key for whatever reason, we can get them in for the day and then remind them not to forget their key again. But they're still safe. So this is what's important to think about. You need to ask this question. Why haven't, why haven't I got a USB key to log into my G Suite or my Office 365? If you haven't got one of these, this is the simplest thing that your business can do to protect itself from 95% of this phishing online problem with passwords being stolen. So easy to do. Why isn't your IT provider doing it? You want to ask them that difficult question. Next one. Are my details online on the dark web? Yes, we've made that assumption. It would be nice to know actually what might be out there. Okay, well, here's a way you can do that for free. Go to a website called Have I Been Pwned? Now, pwned is a bit of a weird word because it's a bit of a techie word, and this is no techno bubble. What I'm going to do is break this down for you. The website that you want to go to is haveibeenpwned.com, and here's, how, here's where you find it. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash H-A-V-E-I-B-E-E-N-P-W-N-E-D.com. Pwned is a sort of hacky term for owned. It means it means that someone's owning your information. If you go to haveibeenpwned.com, you come up with a website that's run by one of the internet's great guys in security. Absolutely, absolutely top bloke. His name's Troy Hunt. He's a Microsoft 
regional director and he does all of this out of his own time to help people he's a genuine good guy and a really really good resource on this side of security and what Trey does what Troy does he keeps this website where you can search for your email address and he'll tell you whether it's in any data breaches that have been published and you can enter your email address and your domain name for your business that's the bit after the at and he'll send you an email if you get found on one of these sites that's compromised. So you can kind of do your own dark web scan on this kind of thing for free yourself. And you don't need to pay anybody to do this expensive scan. So you could do that yourself by going and have I been pwned. That's the next good thing to do. The third thing you want to do is not buy an online scan from one of these companies that's trying to advertise are your company's credentials for sale on the dark web. Don't be wasting your money on this because what they're doing is they're going to do some kind of crappy scan from some other third party company that they'll be buying this off that will do the same thing that Troy's site does and maybe dig up one or two other bits of information about you that's probably on the public record somewhere else anyway. And they're doing it to scare you. They're going to walk into your office and say, oh, I've done a dark web scan and now I know your password. Here's how that works. If you don't know about these things, if you've not learned about these things, if no one's educated you properly, there's a good chance that you've got an email address and one password that you've used for loads and loads of sites. Like I said at the start, that's a very common thing to do. You're gonna change your ways after this. I know you are. But let's say, let's go back to the start and say that that was you, you know, you got the same password. Well, the chances are that password turns up in one of these paste bin sites. It turns up and they find it. So they walk into the office and they're gonna take a shot that the password you use on your computer is the one that they found six times online because the chances are it is and that's what happens when these companies say they come in and i'm going to log into the network with your password because you've used one password everywhere the chances of it getting out there on the net it's pretty much 100 percent. it's going to be out there so they found it and they come in and they've took an educated guess and bingo sometimes they'll be right it's the same password they log into the machine and you're wowed that there's some kind of amazing hacker they're not all they've done is took a lucky guess based on the statistics of what's out there that's all these companies are getting. All these IT businesses that are putting this out there at the moment, it's a gimmick, it's an extra product for them to sell to make themselves some extra money. They're all buying it from other another company or two that are selling it as a product with a whole white label thing called a reseller model where you can sell it as if it's your software with your branding on it, but it's not, it's somebody else's. It's super common in the IT world for all these kind of software to exist where you can brand it as, as if it's your product, but it's not. Don't even get me started on that whole thing. I think that's for another podcast. That's what's going on with this kind of stuff. Don't fall for it. You don't need it. Start with the mindset of an assumption that your record, your information is on the dark web. What am I going to do about it? Take the actions that I told you to take. That is password, different password, complex levels, password manager, two-factor authentication, USB physical key for your core system accounts. That's it. That's what you need to do. And then have a word with your IT provider about why they're trying to use scare tactics and fear to sell you and make them profit. That's the thing you really want to ask. Do you want to be working with a business that uses fear? Fear of your unknown? That's like going into a garage with your car and not knowing anything about cars and then go, well, if you want to drive it home, you know, up to you, mate. You know, good luck. Good luck driving that. You've got seatbelts. You've got all your kids in in the seatbelts in that car. Make sure they're nice and tight. You'd be going, well, what's wrong with my car? What's wrong with your car? No, 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 nothing. We just did a safety scan on your car. It's the same kind of scam. You get scared, and then you say to them, well, what is it that needs fixing? Ah, well, you need new discs and pads and brakes all around. And you should have this new special service that we do for safety, safety service that we do. And it's nothing. It's just rubbish. All they've done is the same things that anybody do. If you change the brakes and discs on a car, it will stop better. 
you put new calipers on, new pads on, a new disc, it'll stop better than it did, and you put the brake fluid in. It's going to be better because it'll be like back to brand new. So that's bound to be better than where it was, even if where it was wasn't particularly unsafe. It's a scare tactic. It's a scam tactic. Don't believe the hype, as Chuck D used to say. Right, let's recap. Subscribe to Have I Been Pwned. Put your domain name and your email in. Find out whether you're out there. You might actually be on listed ones, but make the assumption that you're on something. Start using a password manager like Bitwarden or LastPass or 1Password. They're all usually free for individuals. And then for companies, they're very low price, like 3 to $5 per user per month or maybe five users for $5. I mean, it's really, really not expensive at all for what security it's offering you. Implement two-factor authentication on every single account that uses it. Every single account that uses it. Do not fail to do this. Do it. Make the effort. It only takes a few minutes per account to do it. Take a break out. Get a coffee on. Have a donut. Sit down. Go do it. Tell your staff to do the same. Give them a break. Get everybody done. Get your IT people helping you. Get it done. It's so important because that will take away 95% of your risk. And then number four, go ask your IT people why you don't have USB security keys to log in. Why don't you have them? They are freely available to buy at a low price and they solve 90%, 95% of the security problems. In fact, since Google deployed the USB security key across their whole organization, and I guess they've probably got 100,000 or so employees, they have had zero phishing. They've had zero compromises since they deployed them, which says to me they pretty much work. And you can have them if you use 365 or Google G Suite, which a lot of people do. So if you don't have a key, where's your advice coming from? What's that all about? Ask that question. Good. Pretty much run the time. Three minutes over where I usually go. I think that I think that was a good podcast. I think there's some value in it. If there was, tell me. Leave a review on iTunes. Hit the button for the stars. It only takes a minute and it makes a big difference because no matter how many people download this, iTunes will also look to see if someone's reviewed it. That's how it gets positioned. If you thought what I've got to say is helpful, then help me. Quick review, leave the stars. It means other people can find it better. The same on Stitcher. If you think this is decent, what I'm saying, then tell me and let others find it. If you think what I'm talking is a load of rubbish, leave a comment and tell me why you think it's a load of rubbish. That would be really, really good as well. You could find me on Instagram at that technology guy if you like to fo- follow what goes on in my life, my personal life. So you, you'll see all the things that I think is funny that everybody else looks at me blankly. You get to see my kids. That's where you see that. And if you want to know more about our business, it's at Kimberly.com. You'll find us there. Kimberly.com. K-I-M-B-L-E-Y.com. Not Kimberly as the name of Victoria Wood's character who used to have me pie used to be. No, it's Kimberly.com, not Kimberly. I've been Carl Heath. Good night.